Well, good evening. Welcome to uh, our last part of Summerfest 2022. Glad that you all are here. And I, I, I know that if you were downstairs, you had enough to eat. And this is how the Lord multiplies the, the bread. Uh, we ordered food for 175 and they brought food for 195 and 225 showed up. So, and there was enough food for everybody, right? That's awesome. That's great. Well, so glad. Yeah, that's right. Give the Lord a hand for multiplying the bread. And we'll, we'll, include, uh, we'll include Ranch Catering and Kathy Monsoor uh, in that list as well, because she's the one that owns Ranch Catering. So a couple of things. One is that um, it is, again, great to have you guys here. Glad you were here this morning. Uh, if you need an, uh, there's some information that Eric is going to give out tonight. It's on, we've got it on a piece of paper. If you need one of those for tonight, raise your hand and keep it up until you get one. And we've, we're going to be passing those out right now. So, uh, Carrie, we've got some people up here that have their hands up. So keep your hands up and we'll get that information to you. And, um, yeah. We've got some shirts and some hats that are still available for Summerfest. They're $10 afterwards. Unfortunately, we sold out of all of Eric's books. So if you got one, I hope you read it and enjoy it and pass it on to somebody else. But uh, we're going to begin with a word of prayer, and then we're going to welcome Eric back up. So let's pray together. You go ahead and keep your hands up, though, while they pass it out. <laughs> Just close your eyes. Keep your hands up. Okay. Dear Heavenly Father, we do love you, and we thank you so much for the joy of, of fellowship, and uh, this is the epitome of it, being able to share a meal and then come upstairs and get a real meal uh, spiritually. And so we just are so thankful for Eric and his teaching and this morning and, and in advance for tonight, and um, we love you so much, Father, and we thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, I just want to say one thing as Eric comes on up. Eric, you come on up. But I just, I, I, I love Eric so much. He's such a great friend. And I'll tell you what, there's no one that I know that is more curious about everything than Eric. And we were asking questions. He was asking questions. I was uh, voraciously looking things up on my phone, on Google. And as soon as I got the information, I'd pass it to Eric. He'd read it and then ask me another question. And anyway, it was a lot of fun. I, I love this guy and love his family and I'm so thankful for him. But um, let's show our appreciation to Eric and say thank you. Thank you, thank you. I love this church. I love Kenny and Kathy. If they weren't already my friends, I would pay them to be my friends. They're just, they're amazing. I love hanging out with them and, and all of you. This is just a delight to be here. Well, we're talking about how we grow. As we said this morning, I, I want to make sure that anybody who might not have been here this morning gets caught up to speed really quickly before we dive into the actual practicalities of how we grow. But we're talking about how we grow as Christians. And growing as a Christian is growing as God intended for us to be. When we're outside of a relationship with God, we are not living as humans were intended in the most fundamental way. And that robs us of the kind of joy and meaning and significance and security and purpose that our lives are supposed to have. If you're living outside a relationship with God, I implore you, I plead with you, I beg you to realize what you're missing. It's easy to fill your life with things so you don't recognize the need, but your creator is your greatest need. There's nothing you need even close to him. And so... 
please uh, consider that relationship with God through Christ. But we said this morning that to be someone who grows means starting with an understanding of who we are. And we said it's habits of grace that, that get us there. Uh, is this where we are? Is this tonight? I hope so. Is this tonight? No, I don't think it is. I didn't include pictures in tonight's. All right. Can I go? There we go. Beautiful. Thanks, guys. I got to tell you, I've, I've preached 50, I think this is my 57th time preaching this just this summer since May. And tech people are incredible gifts from God. They really are. It's just amazing. And every time something goes wrong with it in tech area, it's always my fault. It clearly is. But they sort of, everybody looks at them like, what's going on here? And it's me. I'm the problem. And they don't say that usually because they're very kind. But the ability to figure out the mystery of tech and the, the servant-hearted behind-the-scenes thing, there really is an illustration of the Holy Spirit in tech people. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but... But if he's not working, nothing is going to work, right? And, and he's, he's often uh, imperceptible to our senses, and we don't see him, but he's, he's always in the background making it all happen, animating it. And so I just love that. that. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. So uh, we, we said habits of grace or spiritual disciplines, practice with our bodies, mostly normal life, rooted in a local church. And they lead to growth in godliness, which is a gift from God through the kind ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, I would like to do three sermons on the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, but we're not, we don't have time for that. So what I want you to realize is I'm going to give you just the smattering of passages of Scripture for each of the means of grace, the habits of grace that we practice. But I want you to notice there were hundreds I could have chosen for each habit of grace, but I wanted to choose ones that highlight the Holy Spirit's role in practicing those things. And so just pay attention as we go throughout, even if I don't highlight it, please, to the role of the Holy Spirit as we avail ourselves to the means of grace that the Spirit works in our hearts. And so it is his kind ministry that makes this a reality. And we said the goal is not our growth. The goal is intimacy with God, enjoyment of God, delighting in God. That's what it's all about, which bears fruit in our lives and glorifies God as we grow in our enjoyment of him. It's hard to glorify God if you don't enjoy him. And, and so we recognize enjoyment of God and glorifying God go together and fruit of the spirit and fruit in our lives and ministry is a natural outgrowth of that. Romans 6, 4, we're buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That newness of life and walking in it is what we're thinking about. And I just quickly showed this to you this morning, if you were here, at the end of the sermon. And these are the main ways we grow. Now, we're going to make several uh, observations about these nine ways we grow. And some of you I know are already saying, wow, I recognize biblically the importance of those nine but what about love, right? And what I want you to realize is these are things we do so that we grow in our love. 
the attribute of love. Love is a character trait. I know love is, love is a verb too, but before it can be a verb, it needs to be a noun. And so we want to become people who have the love of God poured into our hearts by availing ourselves these things. So the, the habits of grace are not character traits. There's not one fruit of the Spirit up here. These are things we do so that the Spirit's work takes more deeply in our lives and shows up, yes? So it, it, I'm, I'm intentionally leaving off character, Christ-like character traits and fruit of the Spirit. Those are the byproduct of God's work in our lives when we avail ourselves to these means of grace, yes? Now, there are other things that aren't up here that you may be quite upset about with me for not including, like this is a Baptist church and baptism is not up there. What's that all about, right? In the Lord's Supper, isn't that an incredible fundamental means of grace? Yes, absolutely. But I would include those as, as categories within, within one or several of these, actually. Let's just take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a vital component of fellowship. Yes, that's what we do as the body of Christ, partaking of these symbols of the body and blood of Christ. I would say the Lord's Supper is a part of proclamation. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so it could be its own category, but I would see it as part of two or even more of these. So there, there are other things we do as Christians, but these are the big categories. I wanted to figure out a way to summarize the big things we commit to that also include other things within those. Yes? yes. Comments or questions? This is about the size of my classes at Biola, so I love this. Let's, let's talk. Any, got that? Okay. All right, so those are the means of grace. Those are the habits of grace, how we go, what we avail ourselves to. Like I said, I'm amazed at how often people find the Christian life so mysterious. And I do think there's a mystery in how we grow, the timing of it, and how God actually takes us and makes us like Jesus and works his work in us. But I don't think our role is complicated or confusing or mysterious. The, the ways we grow, what we devote ourselves to, is not waiting for the next Dallas Willard book to come out. That's good because he's with Jesus and another one isn't coming out, right? But he's, you know, he, was, he was known for writing really helpful books. And I'm not minimizing the helpfulness of things like books that come out. But sometimes we, we sort of don't like what's actually there all along in what we apply ourselves to. And so we're waiting for that next one, right? That, that latest best-selling Christian book to really help us figure it out as if we don't know what we're supposed to be doing all along. It's been there all along. It's not new. It's, it's very old, actually, the ways we grow. And so these nine things, before we dive into unpacking them one at a time, I want us to think about some qualifying observations. One, these nine things work together interdependently. Maybe even as you looked at that list of nine things that was occurring to you. What do I mean by that? These work together interdependently. Well, what I mean by it is, well, if you're going to be a man or woman of the word, you need to go to the word prayerfully, right? And worshipfully. And if being a man or woman of the word doesn't make you missions-minded, you're not understanding the word. So, so these all work together. And, 
And sometimes when you actually, for instance, learn the word and put it into gear in serving, the word becomes more true and real and transformative to you than it was before. So these work interdependently. The, the, and while we're at it, if you're going to pray, how do you even pray? Well, you pray the way the Bible teaches us to pray, right? And if we're going to worship the way we did this morning collectively, we recognize what the Bible teaches about worship, and we need, we need biblically saturated, biblically informed worship, and prayerful, biblically saturated, informed worship with a, with a proclamation that is included in it. And before you know it, you realize, wow, should we even separate these out? It, isn't it sort of an artificial thing even to, to separate these out into nine categories? Yeah, it is. But you know what? We're finite creatures. And we have no option but to separate things out. Think about them one at a time, especially men. Aren't very good at thinking about more than one thing at a time. And, and that's a generalization. I know it's not true for everyone, but it's true for most. And so it's a generalization. So, um, so there you have it. These work interdependently. Yes? Stop me at any moment. I love to be stopped, except by police on the road. So two, habits of grace look mostly normal. I so want you to appreciate this. They, they are worked out in the midst of normalcy. Yes, there are the burning bush moments in our lives, these kairos moments where God clearly is intervening in ways that are unmistakable and undeniable. And we love those and we embrace those, but we need to realize that even biblically, the burning bushes are few and far between. We need to back up and realize, yes, what an awesome experience Moses has at the burning bush but he had been in the wilderness for how long before the burning bush 40 years and before the exodus how long had Israel been in Egyptian captivity 400 and so we we can think the the Christian life is like sports center Ken and I were just we went to the Padres game last night and and we watched the game and man, it's, it's a commitment of time, right, to watch the game. And we were talking about how thankful we are for things like DVRs. I think someone's related to a DVR in this congregation somehow, yes. Um, where you can condense it. But can imagine if all anyone ever knew was the DVR condensed version of a baseball game. And that's what they had a steady diet of in their life. And then they actually went to one. Like, what is all this downtime, right? This is so boring, right? And we can have a, a highlight reel DVR version or ESPN version of the Christian life where we think it's just one highlight after another. How misleading if you weren't mentally filling in all the, the gaps, instead of the 17 seconds of highlight that a three-hour game included. In the Bible, it is. It's a lot of highlights, but we need to make sure we remember the long periods of just faithfulness in between the times God shows up in obviously powerful and miraculous ways. And the job we have is to translate the powerful eternal realities of being part of God's kingdom's advance into the dailiness of life. I have found, for me at least, this is one of the greatest challenges of being a Christian. 
is translating these awesome kingdom of God movement of which we're a part into changing diapers and sitting in traffic, which is most of life. And I especially talk to young people about this a lot. Young people want action. Now, have you ever heard the expression, we need young people in the church to set it on fire and old people to keep them from burning it down? (laughs) And there's a lot of truth to that. Right? We need each other. And I just love how wonderfully generationally diverse the group here and that this church is. It's a glorious. I hope you appreciate what a glorious part of this church that generational diversity is. A lot of churches don't have anything like this. This is very special. We hear a lot about diversity, which is great, but we don't hear nearly enough about generational diversity. That's actually explicitly biblical diversity God calls us to is the older discipling the younger. And so we commit to this in the normalcy of life. It looks mostly normal. And three, it takes discipline. I said this morning, I want to restore a positive view of words like habit or custom or discipline or even religion. I'm writing a book right now called 20 Things Christians Should Probably Stop Saying. And one of them is... I think we should probably stop saying Christianity's not a religion. It's a relationship. Now, every one of these Christian expressions that I'm suggesting we rethink has truth to them, which is why we use them. But especially in the context in which we're in, they can be misleading. And if you say Christianity isn't a religion, it's a relationship, that's not actually true. It's an overstatement. It's a relationship fundamentally maintained by religious practice. Now, God hates religious practice devoid of the relationship, to be sure. But let's not overstate it and think you can maintain any relationship without faithful attentiveness to that relationship, right? Imagine if I said to my wife when she came to me and said, you know, Donna, Eric, it's been three months since we've been on on a good date. And imagine if I said to her, oh, honey, it's not about what we do, it's who we are. Oh, honey, this is about an organically developing relationship, not about a list of things today. It's not some checklist. Why so legalistic about our intimacy? Right? She wouldn't buy it for a second because she knows every relationship requires attentiveness regularly. The Bible says things like Jesus, when he was in Nazareth on the Sabbath, went to the synagogue as was his custom. He did things in ways where you can count on him. Jesus wasn't flaky waiting for the Spirit to tell him what to do on the Sabbath. He, He went where good Jews were gathering. And so it takes discipline. And it looks mostly normal. And this discipline is long-haul discipline. I will say to my students who say, you know, I'm just floundering in my faith. And I'll say, well, are you in the Word? And they'll say, I tried that. (laughs) Tried it? What do you mean? I was really consistently in the Word. For how long? Like three months. Oh, we have a different definition of what consistency and long-haul faithfulness and discipline means. You're making friends with the word, and friendships take time to develop. It takes discipline. It's like my son. 
My son was 10, my son Sam. He was on the right side of the picture I showed this morning. And he one day said to me, he was 10 years old, he said, Dad, can I go lift weights with you? And I said, sure, it's a little young, but I wasn't going to stack up the weights on him or anything. So, so I said, sure, let's go. And we went, we lifted weights, and I was teaching him how to lift weights, and we lifted for a good hour. And then we came home, we pulled in the driveway, and he shot out of the car. And I assumed he just had to go to the bathroom really badly or something, how quickly he got out of the car. He shot out of the car, and I went in the house, and he wasn't in the bathroom. He was in his room. He ran into his room, and he whipped off his shirt. <laughs> and he was standing in front of the mirror, crestfallen. And I said, Sam, what's wrong? He said, Dad, it didn't work. I don't look any different. I said, oh, son, sit down. Let me tell you how this works. And we had to have a long talk about what it takes over the long haul with patient endurance to be disciplined in the normalcy of it all. And sometimes you even have dips and you get weaker at times in the struggle of consistency. And so it takes discipline, these nine habits of grace. Habits of grace should be rooted in the local church. Uh, I, again, I'd love to give three messages just on that. And I love that you're here. I love that you're here in a local church gathering. There's nothing like it. I, I minister a lot with parachurch organizations. But, you know, I only tend to agree to link arms and minister with parachurch organizations if they really believe they're parachurch organizations alongside with organizations. Alongside what? The local church. Because the local church is the institution, organization, organism that God has created as the fundamental way he is going to grow his people and, and advance his gospel in this world. There's nothing close to it in what God has done. And so these need to be rooted in the local church. All nine of them do. That's when they happen best. I would say that's when they only happen in their ideal way. They happen wonderfully outside of the, the, the local church context too. I'm not minimizing that. But fundamentally, even those times they happen outside the local church, they need to be connected very consciously to the local church. That's why this morning I showed you a picture of some of my people from my church saying, I come here representing grace. I'm not some speaker who is a talking head disconnected from a local body to whom I answer. And so they're grounded in the local church. Five, habits of grace are spirit-empowered. We need him to make these effective, transformative, dynamically helpful in our lives. And as I said, watch the passages I chose for each of the habits of grace. They all have spirit references in them. I'm pretty sure they all do. Six, habits of grace kill sin. This is something I realize some Christians I don't think really believe that we can actually kill sin. Now, yes, sometimes we have simplistic views of sin that the day you become a Christian, you suddenly don't cuss anymore or you, you don't have these things that have plagued you in your life. And God does that sometimes, just But we need to realize that primarily we are freed from sin by the transforming of our minds as God works through all the means he does. And we start to hate sin and love righteousness and kill sin off in the process. It's one of the questions I actually ask potential faculty when I interview them at Biola. I say, do you believe that you can actually kill sin? Not every time. Some, some sin I've battled in my life, throughout my life, as long as I can remember and still to this day. 
but I've actually seen one of the coolest things about being my age is, is looking back at sin that used to plague me that now not only doesn't plague me, I can't believe it ever did. It's just amazing to say, yeah, that sin is dead to me. I see it for what it is finally. And, and I don't even have to fight temptation for it. It's gone. It's beautiful. And that can really happen. God can kill off sin in our lives by the means of grace, the habits of grace. And finally, habits of grace express and enable enjoyment of God. As we said, that's the ultimate goal, intimacy with God and enjoyment of him. All right, any comments, thoughts about these these qualifying statements on the habits of grace. Yeah. Yes. Right. Uh, well, I think, I think we can kill it off generally throughout our lives in our view of sin for what it really is. I mean, how many times does sin have to lie to me? And when I give in to the lies, it just stands up and mocks me before I say, you know, I'm not listening to you anymore. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think we can completely kill off sin entirely in our lives. There, there are some Christian traditions who do believe in sinless perfection. And occasionally I'll meet someone who makes me rethink the possibility, but I know deep down they still have sin problems too. But, um, but, but no, not, not in general, but particular sins. And I would say sin in general in the sense of seeing sin for what it is. Anything outside of God's law is utter foolishness. And, and so much of ministry is helping people move from foolishness to wisdom according to God's ways. And so I'm just very thankful. Now, what's interesting about that, though, is the more you kill sin in your life, the more aware of sin you tend to be, so you actually can feel like you're worse than you used to be, right? And you can feel discouraged, but don't be discouraged, but thankful for the Spirit's work making you aware of sin you used to be clueless about. That can be really helpful. Any other thoughts, comments about this question? Yeah. Ethan, right? Devin. Devin. I just didn't hear it clearly this morning. My bad. Maybe I had donut in my ear. I don't know. So um, I'm wondering if uh, you've ever reached a point in your life where you're not quite as aware of what your sin patterns are, but you don't feel like... Uh, you don't feel like you have many. Um, is there a place where uh, God's able to meet you and convict you, or do you feel like God might be focusing on other areas of your life at that point? Yeah, I love that the Spirit is all-wise and all-knowing and all-powerful. And so when He works in our lives, He does it not only in ways that only He can and needs to, but with a timing that is so kind. Imagine if God revealed all the sin lurking in every one of our hearts right now. We would all just disintegrate, right? It would just be, yeah, we, we couldn't handle that. But he, he does. I remember I was a junior in high school, and I was standing in the senior corridor. And get out of here, freshman. And, and we were standing in the senior corridor, and I was gossiping about someone. It's which kind of what you do in high school. You know, it's your job description. You're a student too, but gossip is what high school students tend to focus on. And so I was gossiping about someone, just tearing them up. And it wasn't because of any circumstances. It was just clear God said, okay, I've had it. And it's like he opened up a 55-gallon drum of conviction on me. 
for the sin of gossip. And I, I remember stopping mid-sentence. One, seeing the foolishness of a false intimacy you think you're developing with someone by trashing someone else with each other. And how foolish that is and empty that is. But, but just the hatefulness of it. And as a Christian, I, I felt oh, oh, a load of conviction for this sin of gossip. Now, it doesn't mean I've never gossiped since, but it's never been the same. It's never been something I, I was clueless about like I was. And so his timing is so kind in that. And he'll bring people, and sometimes conviction comes very clearly, often through the example of another person. I remember we were in a prayer meeting one time at my church, and I think I mentioned in one of the services this morning, I'm very impatient. And this is my church, so I'm not going to make you self-conscious in our prayer times regularly, so I can say this. But I get really impatient with prayer requests that tend to be just stuff we all do every day as a matter of life. Like I need to get my license renewed at the DMV and that can be really stressful for me. I'm like, people are dying in persecuted countries. We're gonna pray for your registration. And, and that's how I can be. Well, I'm just being vulnerable here. Um, and so I remember I was in this prayer meeting and, and, and there was a guy and he, he asked for something. I'm not even going to get specific because somebody in my church may listen to this and know exactly who I'm talking about. But he asked, he asked for something. I just couldn't believe he was asking for. It was like, just Google it. I'll, I'll go over your house and do it for you and just stop with the prayer request. All right, so, um, and I was, I was just really judgmental of this guy's prayer request. Well, out of the gate when we went to prayer, this woman named Mindy Price in my church, who's one of those people who makes me th rethink my doctrine of sinless perfection. Not actually, but she's just so godly. And Mindy, right out of the gate, starts praying for this guy and his request. And she prefaces it by saying, Lord, thank you that this brother is always reminding us that you have the hairs of our head numbered and you care about the little things in our lives because parents care about their children in that way. And things that may seem small to us are things you care about in our lives. <gasps> Just daggers of conviction in my heart, right? Mindy's all in my face preaching a rebuke sermon to me, and she doesn't even know it's going. She doesn't, nobody in the room knows that I'm the reason for this whole thing right now, right? And so the Spirit says, well, in this case, I'm not just going to dump it on you just spiritually. I'm going to use Mindy Price to rebuke you with just who she is, right? And the way she loves this brother and the way your judgmental heart doesn't. And so it comes in all kinds of ways. And you know, a guy will come to my office and say, you know, I'm just admired and lost. And I, I just hate it. I will always try to start that by saying, oh, glory to God. You know, before we talk about the lust, let's Thank God for the Spirit's obvious work in bringing conviction of sin. That's one of the main things He does. You're alive. You're real because you can't sin and, and not have it bother you. I heard one time somebody say, the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is, is not that Christians don't sin. It's that we can't enjoy it like we used to. <laughs> right? It bothers us because the Spirit's working now. Those two can't go together anymore. And so... So yeah, it's, it's just a, a, an amazing thing the way the Spirit does that. Does that help, Devin? All right. Is there anything I can do about this? Or is that just me again? <laughs> My ears. 
You hear that? Just my hearing aid. All right. So, anything else? This is great. You know, as a, as a teacher, I've learned that very often what God's people are bringing to the table is way more what he wants to do than what I have in my notes. So, I'm, I'm saying he doesn't use notes or planning or preparation. I've done lots of that. But, but I, I really want to listen to what's going on among God's people as the Spirit works. So, is there anything else? Yeah, so keeping the goal in mind of, yes, I will repeat that question. Could I elaborate on how the habits of grace are connected to enjoyment of God? Uh, because it's easy for us to, to shift to character formation, character development, making myself a better person, self-help movement, right? And, and it's easy for that to happen, but that can't be the goal. Satan is so shrewd in the way he'll get us to devote ourselves to good things for the wrong reasons, the wrong ultimate goals, and even settle on preliminary goals on the way to the ultimate goal. And that's why a radically God-centered goal of our growth is so important. This is not to become better people. Boy Scouts will do that for you. So, so we're talking about a God-focused, God-centered enjoyment which is why in every one of these habits of grace, we need to have a, a intense, thoughtful, God-pursuing focus. So, so when you go to the Word, um, don't just go for intellectual knowledge or, or historical backgrounds or detailed information. I mean, you will become a more educated person if you know the Bible. It's at the heart of Western culture. You can't call yourself educated in a Western context, especially if you don't know the Bible. And so, so there are lots of benefits in knowing the Bible, but when we go to the Bible, we go on a character of God hunt. We open the Bible and say, Lord, who are you? Show me who you are. And ultimately we see who he is in the face of Christ, but we go on a character of God hunt when we go to the word. And I think the Bible's lifeless to a lot of people because they're not sure what they're really after when they go here. But I want to know my creator. I want to know the one who wrote this through inspired authors so I can know him. And it takes patient endurance to, to hang in there in a year through the Bible in a year reading program when you hit Deuteronomy, right? And, and that's where people just go off the cliff. Usually, ah, I fell off the cliff of Deuteronomy. And so it takes discipline. That's why we included that as one of those. So, so prayer, what is prayer? Just asking for stuff? It certainly includes that, but prayer is communing with God. It's relating to God. It's deepening intimacy with God. It's enjoying his very presence. It's recognizing that Jesus has given you access to God and delighting in that worshipfully. And so, so I mean, we could walk through every one of these and, and show that when we do this with a seeking of God in this, then we find what we're intended to find. And, and we could go through every one of these and do that. So when you give, and, and that's another thing I want to, you to notice here. Some of these were not surprising at all to you. It was like, duh, word, prayer, worship, of course, fellowship, yes. But some of these you may not have ever thought of as a spiritual discipline before. And we'll get to that. We'll get to that, why I think they're spiritual disciplines. 
but they all work together and they all have a quest to know and enjoy God more. And that's why keeping that as the goal that we started off with is so vital. And then saying, so what does it mean for me then to be missions minded in a way that increases my intimacy with an enjoyment of God? Well, it means we don't just do missions out of obedience. We do missions because we delight in God and want other people to delight in Him too and for Him to be glorified through their faithful lives. See, missions, yes, is because we love lost people. But it's actually, it's the John Piper's subtitle of his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Missions exist because worship doesn't. There are places where Jesus isn't being worshipped, so we go because that bothers us that He's not being glorified the way we've learned He deserves glory. So there's a God-centeredness to all this. Service can become very horizontally focused. Very horizontally focused. We have an amazing orphan care ministry at our church and the food bank I mentioned this morning. It is so easy for those ministries to become all about the orphan and the hungry people in our community. Instead of God being glorified through their lives and using this provision that we give them in God's name to bring them into relationship with God so that they worship Him with their lives. And we enjoy his work in their lives when we see that. So every one of these, we need to go about with a very intentional God-centered focus as, as it, that doesn't get derailed. Does that help? Okay, great. All right. There it is. What a great segue, John McMahon. Ed McMahon. John McMahon. Ed McMahon. Um, a third of you, uh, two-thirds of you have no idea what I just said. <laughs> And I like that. I enjoy that. We older folks need some inside jokes. You kids have all of them. So we want, we need a few too. Um, uh, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. So this, this commitment and delight go together. We commit ourselves to his ways. And these means of grace are a fundamental commitment to his ways. And then delight in the Lord grows. We delight in him, so we commit to his ways. And we grow in our delight. And it continues on in that way. So his delighting in him is what this is about. All right, you ready? Here we go. We're finally, wow, getting to unpacking them one at a time very quickly. The word. We need to be men and women of the word. Now, some of you are saying, yeah, you don't even need to say that. That couldn't be more obvious to me. Um, and I think most Christians in an evangelical context, gospel people would say, yeah, the word is how we know God. But I really am concerned about a disconnect between what we know and what we think we're committed to and how committed we actually are. You know, if you believe the statistics, you never hear the expression, there are lies, damned lies, and statistics. Uh, it's, statistics could be a way people lie all the time. But I, I've done my own research. I've read lots of research. But um, there, there is a dearth of Bible knowledge among Christians who say they believe the Bible is the Word of God. So I asked my Biola students, who are some of the most brilliant people on the planet. I, best reason to go to Biola is because of the students. They're just incredible. Mostly raised in Christian families, mostly raised in Christian churches. And I've asked them basic Bible knowledge questions when they come in as freshmen or sophomores. You wouldn't believe how little Bible they tend to know. Not, there are some wonderful exceptions. But I just asked them, name the Ten Commandments. Do you know what percentage of my Bible students could name all Ten Commandments in order? Four percent. Most couldn't name half. 
Um, some added ones like do unto others or um, give a man a fish. He'll, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing how, and, and this is true across the board. And we're not aware of how little we actually know the Bible. We believe the media hype about ourselves as a bunch of Bible thumpers when the fact is most Christians in the United States aren't even Bible readers, never mind thumpers. How do you thump your phone now anyway? But uh, yeah, so we, we and don't, please don't spend the rest of our time honoring your mother and father, keep the Sabbath. But, uh, do that later, do that later. But, but chances are it, it's not quite like we think it is. And so we need to be people of the word. The word is how he transforms our thinking as the spirit works. The word is how we go about doing everything else on the list. We pray in a biblically informed way. We worship in a biblically informed way. We go about missions and service and ministry and proclamation and fellowship in a biblically informed way. The Bible is this anchor, this lens through which we see everything else. If we're not people of the word, call the whole thing off. Just don't even try the next nine because we won't be doing them the way God calls us to. So we've got to be people of the Lord. And remember I said, I've highlighted the Spirit's work in these. We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And so we have the Word of God working in this way. Prayer. Uh, what does it mean to be men and women of prayer, devoted to prayer? Now, every one of these habits of grace that I'm talking about have three aspects to them. They have a personal, what you could call private component to them. So it's very important that we as God's people get in the word, carve out time, get, get some space and get in the word as individuals, prayerfully and worshipfully, yes, but that we have time in the word. It's very important that we as God's people get into prayer individually, privately, on our knees, in our prayer closet. But there's also a wonderful corporate dimension to all of these as well that they sort of build on each other. The individual pursuit of a word-filled, prayerful life, worshipful life, for instance, then is brought to the corporate setting. And a prayerfulness you've been cultivating at home alone now is brought to the table in the corporate context. Imagine if every Christian who shows up at church on a Sunday morning had been praying regularly on their own all week. The difference that would make when we gather. And so we recognize a, a private, a corporate component, but we also in all of these recognize what you could call a throughout the day component. That we're commanded, yes, to pray, to lift holy hands in a corporate setting, to have private prayer lives, but we're also called to what? Be in constant prayer. Have prayerfulness. Kenny prayed for us. On the way over here this morning, I think it was, as he was driving. And when he started praying for us, I, I was very tempted to go, I hope his eyes are open, right? <laughs> be, because we, we tend to, to think everything needs to stop. No, there should be a prayerfulness, right? Woven into our days. In, in the midst of conversations, I find that cultivating this is so wonderfully helpful. Even in a conversation, I'll be saying, Lord, help me to help this brother. Help me to help this couple. Right now, I'm, I don't know what they need to hear from me. I don't know if I should just shut up and listen. I don't know what I should say. I don't know where to take this right now. Lord, help. And, and there should be a prayerfulness throughout our days as well as a private focused prayer time and a corporate prayer time as well. The Spirit himself intercedes for us with words 
with groanings too deep for words. A beautiful ministry of the Spirit. I absolutely love that ministry he has in our lives. Because I must say, of all these habits of grace, prayer is the one that's hardest for me. I think it's related to the impatient sin that I, I mentioned before. And, and by the way, these are not optional spiritual disciplines. These biblically are non-negotiable commands, every one of these, to be devoted to God's people. I, I'm amazed at how often I'll talk to Christians, and it seems to me they have a very designer spirituality mentality about the Christian life. You know, there'll be something clearly commanded in the Bible, but they say, you know what, that, one, that was not very important to me. Like a guy told me after, after covid um, uh, regulations stopped and we were able to meet again. He said, you know, I enjoy it online more. Uh, you extroverts need to actually gather. Right, so he, he pulls this character trait he perceives about himself and he uses it to get around a command in Scripture to gather. And, and I say that because I think every one of these things we're talking about are commanded, but I do not believe journaling is commanded. And I'm really glad because I... I've tried it lots of times, and I gave up a long time ago. I'm just not patient enough for journaling, and I can't even write legibly enough to go back and read what I wrote, and so it's kind of not helpful in that way, and so I do not feel guilty for not journaling. Some of you would say, well, I wouldn't be growing if I weren't journaling. Well, good. Good for you. Um, I wouldn't have grown the way I did if my parents were divorced. You don't want to make that a rule for everybody, do you? So uh, some things aren't commands. Something, I can list a lot of other things like that. But um, we don't want to make commands out of our experiences, and we don't want to make commands optional spiritual disciplines. These aren't sort of do-it-if-it's-working-for-you sorts of things. It's just amazing how I'll, I'll talk to Christians and say, yeah, I don't really, I don't really get into that. You know, I love studying the Bible, but prayer, I don't like singing. I don't like worship. Yeah. You don't have that option. Now, I've said to people, if you don't like worship, why in the world do you even want to go to heaven? Just read the descriptions <laughs> of heaven and the world. Why do you want to go to heaven? You're going to hate it, right? If you don't like worship now. And so the Spirit does this for us. And prayer has been a struggle for me throughout my life. And I'm so grateful for this promise that the Spirit comes. Can you imagine if someone recorded your prayers in the morning? And then played them publicly. Like if you listened to my prayers in the morning, prayed publicly, uh, played publicly, it'd be really embarrassing to me. There'd be like, Eric, you, that's like the fourth time you just said that same thing again. And those three sentences made absolutely no sense at all. And what was that long period of silence? Was that contemplative meditation? <laughs> nope. Spontaneous nap in the midst of my prayer time is what that was, right? Yeah, oh, I get some great naps smack in the middle of prayer time. And I used to feel so guilty for this. But you guys know Michael Card. I got to spend some time with this amazing musician one time. It's a very wise man. And I was telling him about how guilty I felt for how often I fell asleep when I was praying. And he said, oh, Eric, don't feel guilty about that. Do you think an old dog feels guilty when he falls asleep at the feet of his master? I love that interpretation <laughs> of my sleepiness in my prayer time, right? Um, so, so yeah, it's communing with God. And the Spirit listens to my groanings. You know, I've been praying for people in my own family that they will come to trust Jesus for 45 years. There's some people I'm praying for 45 years, and I've prayed everything I could think to pray. 
I've prayed, Lord, bless them so they'll turn to you. Lord, take everything away so they'll turn to you. I've prayed, Lord, take my life if that'll somehow do it. And I'm at the point with some people and some issues in my life where my main prayer is, ah! And the Spirit says, got it. And he takes it before the throne and he translates it into an intelligible prayer based on what he knows is going on in my heart. Is that great news? The kind ministry of the Spirit. So men and women of prayer is what we're called to. Next, worship. And I really want to emphasize this. I, I went for a long time in my Christian life where my only worship was the second and third aspect I've talked about. A corporate, a regular corporate component of my worship. And I would say, and it's linked to the curiosity that Kenny mentioned that I, I just have it to a fault, is I, I found myself easily worshipful throughout the day. And I've tried to help my family with this. Like, we'll go to beautiful places. We'll be in Yosemite and we'll see that valley. And it's literally breathtaking. And I mean that. It's like somebody pulled the air out of my lungs when I see the, the South Valley and when I see Bridal Veil Falls and I see these beautiful things. But we, we've got to say, oh, what an awesome waterfall. How about the God who made it? What about him? This is just a little, and, and how awesome this is. And so we recognize who God is. We see his creation as a means, a conduit, an avenue of worship of him throughout our lives. And, and so I, I want to encourage you, but I went a long time with just corporate and throughout the day worshipfulness and not enough private worship. What do I mean by that? I think a lot of devoted Christians I know spend time in the word and prayer. But I think many of them don't then in, in any way sort of turn the corner to a worshipful expression where before you end your time in the word or prayer, you, you express your affections for God, your adoration for God. For me, it's singing. It doesn't have to be singing. Singing is certainly not the only way we worship God, but it's, it's really a biblical primary way, which is why the church has always been so committed to it. And so I don't have a good voice, but I make myself sing in the morning. And it's real, people in my life are so glad I do this because I'm one of those people who never wakes up in a good mood. I don't know if you know these people. My wife is the opposite, and she's so annoying because she's so happy in the morning. Good morning. What's so good about that? That's why sometimes I'll get up at four, so by the time I have to face people, I'm human, right? And, and so, but if, if I spend time in the Word and prayer, and then if I open up a hymnal and I sing a hymn, oh, it's so good for my heart. There's a tenderizing effect that expressing, expressing worship, especially in singing, makes, makes a huge difference. I have a friend who, he was from a hockey family. I grew up in the Northeast in Connecticut, and there were a lot of hockey families. Anybody know hockey families? Like, no, San Diego, yeah. Where'd you grow up? There you go. You know hockey families, right? So they wear untied Timberland work boots, Jeans, flannel shirts, untucked, mullets very often, and a tough guy look. Hockey families. And I knew a lot of hockey families growing up. I played a lot of hockey. And my friend Jeff was the youngest in a family of eight, five boys, five hockey playing boys. And Jeff looked up to his older brother, Bob, more than anybody on the planet. Bob was his hero. 
And Bob was a hard-drinking, partying high school kid and a tough hockey player. And Bob had an accident where somebody got killed, and it crushed him, and it turned his life around. And he trusted Jesus and, and became a devoted follower of Jesus, and he still is to this day. Well, Bob would tell Jeff what had happened to him. And Bob would, uh, Jeff would be kind of interested, but he didn't really get it until the first time he went to church with his tough hockey-playing brother. Still had the mullet. But when he looked over at his brother, his big, tough hockey-playing brother, with his eyes closed, pouring out his affection for God and singing, he didn't even have a category for it. He, he's, what has happened to my brother? Who put someone else in his body, right? Well, that's what knowing God as the one who saved your life will do for you. Hearts that have been set free from slavery are prone to sing. I mean, just look at the tradition of Negro spirituals, people who suffered most in our society, coming out with some of the most incredible affection expressed to God in singing. And so worship is something we need to cultivate. Again, imagine if we all had private times of worship and then came into our corporate times. How different it may be. Worship, giving. Boy, I could spend a series on this, and I actually have. But giving fries our hands off of the idolatry that tends to always lurk in our lives. The Bible says so much about giving because God knows that where your, where your heart is, there is your treasure. And our treasure so easily becomes the resources we have in our lives is the source of our security and our significance and our meaning and our purpose. And every time we give generously, Every time we give self-sacrificially so we feel it to the work of God, God is doing a glorious sanctifying work and prying our hands off our idols. It's a wonderful discipline. And again, this is one of those disciplines we tend not to see as a spiritual discipline. This is kind of what you do after you're godly. No, this is what you do on your way to being godly. This is a practice you devote yourself to and you will start to find a reprioritization of your heart, of your desires, Giving generously, and it's good. You know, I know the command not to know what your right hand and left hand is doing. Keep sort of your giving a secret. That's to counteract ostentatious public giving for impressiveness. It's not to keep it a secret. I think most guys would rather talk about a porn problem than their giving. And where that is, I have a friend, Dave Talley, he's amazingly adventurously giving. And I'll often say to him, Dave, what, what are you and giving like these days? Give me examples. And I'll say, oh, maybe I need to rethink what generosity means based on Dave's example. And so when we devote ourselves to this, it's a wonderful slaying of idols in our lives. Giving. Uh, serving. Again, this is so in the context of fellowship, but we serve. We lay down our lives as the one who came to serve and not be served and give his life as a ransom for many. And realize how many of these things, how all of these things are, are things we do as, with Jesus as our example. Again, see the Spirit's work in this? Same Spirit, varieties of service, same Lord, varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all and everyone. There's a Trinitarian core to all of the Christian life. 
And here's a really explicit example of that. Father, Son, and Spirit working in all of this. God the Father, Jesus the Lord, and the Spirit working in the context of the church in the way we serve, in the power of serving. And again, serving like giving is a releasing of our idols to God, the idol of our time, the idol of, of our attention, the idol of our resources, our energy. We depend on the Spirit to do this for us in our lives. Proclamation. Another one you may not think of as a spiritual discipline, but it is. Look at, listen to Philemon. I pray you'll be active in sharing your faith. And then you expect him to say, so the people to whom you proclaim will have a full understanding of every good thing you have in Christ. It's not what it says. It's so you, Philemon, will. I've been telling the Dodds about the best pizza on the planet this week, and we went to a place that's trying to be like them and explicitly doing so in San Diego. There are actually two places trying to be like New Haven Pizza in New Haven, Connecticut on Worcester Street, Little Italy. My mouth, I'm not saying, my mouth is watering right now, and I just ate as I think about Pepe's and Sally's Pizza. And even the knockoff version I had last night from San Diego. But, but as I'm telling you even right now, and I can go into great detail as I've bored the, the Dodds with about why New Worcester Street Pizza, Google it if you don't trust me. I know what I'm talking about. Google will prove everything. And just go out there and, and see what I'm talking about. But if I talk to you about all the reasons, the freshness of every ingredient, the Consiglio family that gets up at four in the morning and starts chopping vegetables and making sausage and, 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 and making dough for the day in the oven, they never let get below 500 degrees. And then they crank it up to eight so the flavors are sealed in. I'll stop there. But what I'm saying is, is as I'm telling you about this pizza, my appreciation for it is deepening. And it's like that with anything. When you speak with appreciation and affection, trying to help other people appreciate and understand, it deepens in you. I think the reason so many Christians are stifled in their Christian growth is they don't speak well of Jesus to the point where it's getting deepened in their own hearts. Seven, fellowship. I could go on about this. I talked about it somewhat this morning. But the, the fellowship of the saints is this precious context within which we do what we do as God's people. We are the people of God. We are hagioi. We are saints. We are, we are priests to our God. We have this incredible interdependence as God's people because he created us never to grow in isolation but with one another. And we need to commit to the long-haul, annoying, discouraging, disappointing hurtful at times process of real fellowship over the long haul. Kevin Young talks about having never met a man disconnected from the church who has a deep relationship with God. And he says that has generational effects. And, and he says, if you disconnect from the people of God, it will damage your own heart. It will shoot your children in the foot and it will shoot your grandchildren in the heart. When we disconnect from the people of God, we desperately need each other and we depend on each other to grow. The fellowship of the Spirit is what we share. Just two more. Suffering. Again, a discipline? What are you, a masochist? What's this about, right? I, I, I discipline myself to suffer? Well, yes. What do I mean by that? Now, suffering comes your way. You don't have to go looking for it. It's going to come your way in a fallen world. But the question is, when it does, what's your attitude? What do you think about? Is it as avoidance at all cost? 
Is it thinking suffering is, is this great evil that, that has nothing good in it? Or do you realize that suffering produces endurance, which produces character and produces hope and does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts again through the Holy Spirit's work. And so we recognize that suffering in this fallen, cursed world is this primary context, this pain that God, Romans 8 tells us, has subjected the world to is for a glorious purpose for the redemption of the children of God so we don't settle here as if this is all there is because that will be our temptation every time and so suffering is something we devote ourselves to so when it comes our way doesn't mean you don't take an excedrin for a headache or go to a doctor for an ailment or a therapist for help in, in your thinking or relationship it doesn't mean you don't seek solutions but sometimes we think the only answer to prayer is going to be when that problem and suffering is gone and you know as a minister people are going to come to you with problems and suffering and they never really are looking necessarily for what God's looking for. They want to feel better now. And that might not be what God has. It may be protracted suffering for the purpose of holiness. And you have the guts to be that kind of uh, minister and, and counselor and friend. And so suffering is something we move toward. We lean into suffering saying, Lord, what do you have for me in this? And I also think we do choose suffering as Christians. What does that mean? It means we recognize that we're not the only ones suffering, but other people are too. And so out of love for them, in the context of our fellowship as our starting point, we move toward people and do what Jesus tells us to, to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn and bear one another's burdens. It's not your burden. But being a follower of Jesus means making it yours. We, for the past year and a half, and our family have gone through a, a just really difficult crisis. And in some ways the hardest thing, I've been through hard stuff, but in some ways this has been the hardest thing we've gone through. And, and I came into a prayer meeting about three months into this crisis in our family. And they were having a prayer meeting. And they didn't know I came in. <laughs> and I got to hear my people in my church family, pray for me and my family in the midst of this crisis. In a way, I don't think they would have if they knew I was there. I think they would have been more guarded. I think they wouldn't have wanted me to feel uh, the, the effect of how it was affecting them. But it was a gift of God to know how truly, not just theoretically, the people were bearing that burden with us, but in some ways feeling it as deeply as we were. And so it was a glorious thing to, to share in that suffering. And so it means we move toward people, willing to take on their suffering, believing God's going to take care of us not only in our own suffering, but when we move into it in the lives of other people. I have examples in my life of people who just set the bar so incredibly high, like the Shaw family. Look at this incredible family. Um, guys, I think I went off the rails at the end there. Could you go back to the Shaw family? There we go. That's Brian and Amy Shaw. Uh, we met Amy at Wheaton when we were there. She was a, re a student in my wife's residence hall. And just an amazing light. You can, I think you can probably tell. She's just incredible. And she married a man just as incredible, Brian. And, and they had four biological children, but God burdened them to care for kids 
who were, didn't have families, especially ones with significant disabilities. So they began the process of adopting their son, who's standing in the front uh, with his disabilities, and then six children later, uh, to make it ten, the Shaws have lived an incredible life. You know, I think, man, it's hard enough just to do what I got on my plate today. How am I going to move in and, and take on the problems of other people that, that I don't have to have? I mean, what do people pray for when they get pregnant? We just want a healthy baby, and you should pray for that. That's completely right. But they go looking for ones who aren't, knowing they're all over the place. And why do they do this? They do it because they enjoy God. The name of their home is Glory View. And Brian and Amy just moved towards suffering and made it their own for years. And so three years ago when Brian was diagnosed with brain cancer, you'd think, how could this be, Lord? This is cruel. Well, I actually can't think of two people who were more prepared to move into suffering than Brian and Amy. That's how they spent their lives, seeking a view of the glory of God in the midst of it. And when Brian died, and left Amy with these 10 kids, you should have seen the fellowship and the word and prayer and worship and service and the great commission. They were missionaries before they had to come off the mission field because of some, some challenges they had had. And all these means of grace kicked in the gear in ways that have been incredible. And just three weeks ago, Amy said, I've had a grief that I never thought I could get past. But I must say, this week, I feel new freedom. And she's looking for not only overcoming challenges in her life, but in other people's lives again. It's just amazing how when you believe God is who he says he is, and you move toward him in these simple, practical ways, he gets a hold of your life and enables us to live lives that are inexplicable apart from God's powerful work in and through our lives. All right, that's all I got. Comments or questions? Just a couple, I think, we have time for. Comments or questions, thoughts, anything? Well, fellowship would be the, the first one I would think of. Because we have a fellowship that is in Christ, not our demographic descriptions. And sadly, the church in the United States in particular, my wife actually did her PhD dissertation in education on Christian college students' conceptions of community. And even if the few that had a theological, biblical basis for their definition of Christian community in Christ, you know where they actually experienced it? Their hobbies. You know, my surfer bros are my real buds, even if they're not lovers of Jesus. And the fact is, you can find someone that matches my demographics, age-wise, race-wise, socioeconomic status-wise, sports team affiliation, whatever it is. You can find somebody who's sort of a carbon copy of me. And if he doesn't love Jesus, and there's a little girl in a slum in India right now who does, she's my sister. And we have a bond that so transcends any bond that this guy and I have that have all these similarities. She and I are family. In a way, he and I, unless he becomes a Christian, will never be. 
And so we need to realize that unity comes in Christ, not in our hobbies, our demographic similarities, these sorts of things. And I believe one of the ways God wants to show the world his work in our lives is by having relationships that aren't oriented around our similar interests, but Jesus. So when somebody comes and says, wait a second, you're from San Diego, she's from Uganda, and you're like family, explain that to me. And you just say, oh, Jesus, that's how I explain it. He is our unity. We're found in him. We're family forever. And that transcends all the earthly categories there are. And so fellowship is the lead way, those kinds of issues, and serving, that we reach the world in a missional, prayerful, worshipful, proclaiming way for the sake of the advance of the gospel to the glory of God and people being brought into his kingdom and experiencing that unity. Does that help? Okay. Another question or two? Yes, tell me your name. Tiffany. Did I miss it? Oh, how horrible. I, just, I, was, I was so struck by the Shaws that there it is. I skipped over it and I just went, ah. There it was. There, there it is. Missions. Yes, thank you. I'm, how could I leave that? God would not be happy if I left out the Great Commission. Now would he? So thank you, Tiffany. Tiffany, thank you. Yes, if we don't end with looking at the nations as this goal that needs to invade our lives, we're going to miss this whole trajectory of salvation history in the Bible itself. God is the God of the nations. God is the God of every tongue, tribe, nation, people on earth. And we're part of that incredible movement. And so missions is what we're called to. So we, we need to be people who devote ourselves, again, privately, corporately, and throughout our days to be missions-minded and great commission concerned, or else my life will get really small and focused on Eric. That's why I have the Joshua Project send me an unreached people group every morning on my phone. It's the first thing I look at in the morning. I pull up, there's one in Kazakhstan this morning that I prayed for when it came up on my phone. I don't know who's sending these at three in the morning, but they're always there when I get up. And so so yes, there's a, a group I prayed for this morning or else my world will get very small and very petty. And so focus, reading missionary biographies is so helpful in this. Supporting missionaries, praying for missionaries. And this is preaching to the choir. I said that, you know how idioms are the hardest thing for second language English speakers to, to get or any language. My, all four of my kids had forced me hundreds of times to tell them why we, th Dad, why did you say we're preaching to the choir? We don't even have a choir. Let me explain that. But I know this is a missions-minded church. It, do you know how helpful it is to have m folks who've been on the mission field lead a local church in the United States? It gets in your bones. And it, it, it won't go away once you get in context where people desperately need the gospel. You know, I really think we have three options when it comes to the Great Commission, either being missionaries sending and meaningfully supporting missionaries or being disobedient. I think those are our three options. And, and again, we tend to think this is what godly people do. But you know, I've met or, never met a godly person who wasn't missions-minded. And I don't think it's, it's godliness leads to missions-mindedness. I think it works both ways. I think missions-mindedness leads to godliness because God is the God of the Great Commission. You become more like God when you start to think the way he does about people who need him. 
and care and pray and support and send and, and encourage, right? And so that's what you do. We were talking about one of my mentors this morning, sometime, Robert Coleman. Robert Coleman, his mother, wanted to be a missionary more than anything. And she married an Iowa farmer and spent her life as a farmer's wife in Iowa rather than the mission field like she wanted to. But if you met Robert Coleman and Lyman Coleman, her two boys, you will see that their mom did not fail in her efforts in missions. Oh, she was a farmer's wife her whole life. But do you know what her last dying word, the last words Robert and Lyman Coleman's mother said before she went to be with Jesus? She said, boys, now you make sure my missionary pledges are all paid up, okay? That's the last thing she said. Lyman Coleman has probably been behind more international Sunday school curriculum maybe than any single person. Robert Coleman has been a traveling evangelist, training missionaries and, and pastors all over the world. I got to go to, got to, go to Moscow with him and, and train, mission, train pastors in, in Russia. One came from through 10 time zones, from Vladivostok to Moscow to be at this pastor's conference. It's unbelievable. His mother did not fail. So the details aren't the essential thing. It's the mission's heart and mission's mindedness that we, we have as churches, as individuals in this world that will not only advance the gospel, but make us more like God as a means of grace. Okay, one more question or comment in the back. Tell me your name again. David. Oh, David, what a great question. That's a question from a man with an earnest heart who's asked that question of himself and has struggled. I, I just love that question, David. It, it's a great question. And what I, oh, I'm sorry, yes. Um, what does it mean to devote ourselves to these things? I'll just put it the way I, I would phrase it, without being overwhelmed by the how much question. When am I doing well? When am I doing well enough in these areas? How, how in the word do I have to be? And I, it can be overwhelming. I read a missionary biography, and I read this. He spent three hours every morning in prayer, and I'm like, <laughs> I'm a loser, right? And, uh, and, and he loved it the whole time. Now, that's the real challenge. I can spend three hours in prayer, but it's like, oh, I got stuff to do, right? And, and so the, the thing I, that my first instinct to answer your question, David, is the how, how much question comes from an earnest heart, but saturating it all with abundant grace is the key. That there's grace. I love verses that say things like, God knows our frame, that we're but dust. That's why the falling asleep in my prayers, I'm, I'm all right, no, it doesn't bother me anymore. I'm fine. Yeah, that's right. I sleep my prayers. I'm good with that. And, and so there's, there's grace woven through all of this. God wants a heart that seeks him in faithfulness to what he calls us to. And just bask in the grace of God in all of that. And one of the ways we can be the best examples we can be is in the way we deal with our failures. The way we deal with our in, in, insufficiencies and the struggles we have with different things. In, in helping people with our honesty in that thing, not that we've arrived. Paul's an old man when he says, not that I've attained all this, 
But I press on to the upward call in Christ Jesus. It's long-haul consistent faithfulness we're called to, saturated in grace along the way. And it's actually maddening to me because I'm very much, I was an athlete. I played football for 16 years. And to this day, when I'll go run hills at the park, I would never think of not touching that fence at the end. I would never like stop a foot and a half short, ever. That's just, and I would, that's not how I was wired. And so I want to see it through. I want to know I'm doing it right. But the beauty of it is, is when we devote ourselves to these things faithfully, the relationship grows and there's an enjoyment of that, which is the evidence that, hey, I'm doing all right. And, and I want us all to experience a kind, loving father who calls us to these relationships and disciplines in a way that is like a good father would be. When the kid's inconsistent or, or drops the ball or, or, or doesn't do that one well, and it comes out of a heart of love. It's not you, loser, but it's my boy. It's like the Proverbs. It's, it's I want you to have life. I don't want you to live life just on TikTok. Right? I want you to be a man of prayer, son. Can you tell I've said these words? Yes. Um, and, and, but, it, but it's got to come from a heart of love. And, and it's saturated with grace. And it drives me nuts how unspecific God is sometimes. Like the giving one, for instance. It's like, give generously from a cheerful heart. And I'm like, can I get a percentage on that? Nope. Not in the New Testament. We're given generous because God has been so generous to you. Now go for it. A percentage would be helpful, though. It's not how he does it. He leaves it to us to work these things out in the context. Like over my lunch with Dave Talley that I just mentioned, talk about generosity. Work, God wants that process of me and Dave over lunch talking about what it means to be generous men. We don't just want to say, you doing your 15%? Yep, got it, good, okay, good. He wants us to have a relational component to working these things out in our context, saturated with grace, believing that when you devote yourselves to these things, you will grow. And that's a joyous process. Or God's a liar, and he's not. Because these are the things he says we devote ourselves to and we grow. How glorious. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for the, the lavish display of your love and grace and mercy we read about this morning. And Lord, I pray that we would believe that's not just true in becoming Christians, but it's true every day of our lives, walking in newness of life. That you're God who loves us. Yes, who grieves over our sin and disciplines children in rebellion, but always out of an amazing heart of love. To restore, to give life, because you can't just let us settle for emptiness and vanity in this world. So Lord, thank you for how good you are. Thank you that you're not only true, but you're good, and we can depend on you, and we don't need to fend for ourselves. Lord, give us renewed discipline Diligence and focus saturated with grace and Lord help us to enjoy deepening intimacy with and enjoyment of you we pray in Jesus name. Amen. Hey, let's say thank you to Eric. Well, you know how God multiplied the food that we ate earlier I trust that as Eric provided us this meal, that he multiplied it in many different ways in your hearts. And my prayer is that 
you don't just say that was, uh, walk away and say that was a great message, that was a great talk, but that you would say, yeah, here's what I want to do differently because of what I heard tonight. And so that you, you, you will take it and you'll make it real in your lives. Start with one area, maybe how God touched your heart tonight uh, about something that, that Eric said. Um, and, and if God has spoken to you in a special way, then uh, we're going to have some folks up here to, to listen to you, to pray with you if you want to share with them. But if you don't, share with someone. Share it with your spouse. Share it with a friend. Just say, here's what I'm going to take from what Eric said tonight and, and, and make it happen in my life. And so thank you guys so much for coming. Thanks for being here. And um, let's just stand together. And we're going to dismiss with the same verse that we had this morning. And again, if there was one prayer that I prayed corporately for you and, and specifically for you, it's this prayer in Second Peter 3.18, that, that you might grow in grace and in knowledge of who God is and, and that that would be for his glory. And, and he is to be glorified. He is the great God who we do all of this for his glory. And, and we do it because of Jesus. And so I commit you to the Lord. And uh, may you be blessed and may you be a blessing to others. Uh, and even more so because of what you've heard tonight. So uh, have a great rest of the evening. Have a great rest of the week. And um, God bless you. Please take advantage of being here tonight. Maybe sitting in a different place where you normally sit. And meet at least one person and learn their name of someone that's sitting around you. God bless.